Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to the fall of the season, of the state, of the empire. We'll see. Welcome to Electric Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this just beautiful fall day are Andy Bramson. Hey, Andy. Hey, Chris. And Matt Cookham. Hello. And joining us from the University of South Carolina, Aiken, is our good friend, Mitch Crum. Hey, Mitch. How's it going? Hey, all right. Although it's less of a beautiful fall day here. Yeah. All right. Standard check-in. We, we're not. We're not even <laughs> close to being envious yet because it really is glorious here. But what's oh, yeah. the weather like in South Carolina? Oh, it's been miserable. Um, when it isn't hot, it's raining. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. That sounds unpleasant. <laughs> Crisp fall day. Beautiful colors right here. <laughs> can I? Can I share something else that's much smaller than the weather that makes me also uncomfortable? I can't explain why it doesn't evoke any particular negative feelings in me, but I, I hate that we call the fall foliage observers leaf peepers. <laughs> I've never yes. called them leaf peepers. I, what? It, it's in the new. It's in like in the, it's in the paper all the time. Like you know, oh, this is it's the great. Thing. It's the best weekend for leaf peepers. Wow. I'm like, no, it's not. No one should be called that. That should wow, be the yeah. thing we do. Yeah, I agree with you. I, it's deeply problematic. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that term, but yeah, wow, yeah, with you. Um, mm. We are here not to talk about the loss of chlorophyll, <laughs> but the loss of the loss of political comity in uh, <laughs> yeah. Congress. We are in the midst of nice alliteration there. I like it. Thank wow. you. <laughs> We're in the midst of what can only be described as a true political Gordian knot with hmm. two major pieces, perhaps the most signature pieces of the entire Biden administration in terms of legislation being in, in various stages of in Congress. We have a roughly $1 trillion infrastructure package and a, another package called the American family plan, which definitely sounds like life insurance but in fact is something somewhere between 1 trillion and 3.5 trillion dollars of social spending in terms of a massive expansion of the social safety net it is not clear at this point that either piece of legislation is going to pass but if either one of them does or if both of them do they will represent essentially the entirety of the biden domestic agenda the reason why it is so unclear whether they're going to pass or not is because the senate is evenly divided with Democrats controlling the Senate by virtue of Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, and Democrats controlling the House by the thinnest of margins, six or seven votes, depending on the day. And that means that we're going to we're in a situation where um, Democrats essentially have to get every single vote to vote for whatever legislation they want to pursue, because Republicans refuse to vote for either piece of legislation in its entirety. And this has been a known object for the entirety of the debate because of polarization. And you can imagine a world in which, a fictional world, but a world in which uh, conservative 
Democrats don't want to support this, but maybe some liberal Republicans do, and you have to peel off some Republicans, but that's not the world we live in. We live in a world that is deeply, deeply divided by partisanship. And so we're going to use this little bit longer conversation today to just talk about this very feature of American politics, polarization. So I'm going to start by throwing this uh, over to Matt. Matt, in terms of this current congressional morass, how much of it can we actually explain on polarization itself? I mean, a, a good deal. Um, I mean, essentially what you have um, is you have a sort of, you know, currently, uh, because Democrats have razor thin majorities, the thinnest possible in the Senate and extremely thin in the House. Basically, the Democrats are sort of in the driver's seat. Um, but of course, they don't all agree upon what direction they want to go. Um, so there is a more you know, radical sort of progressive contingent. It's unknown just how many there are, but depending on how you figure it, um, there's there's enough essentially that want to sort of swing for the fences and believe that um, this particular sort of legislative moment, you know, the first year of the Biden administration is the only real shot they have for the next four years to implement um, sort of the sweeping massive changes that they would like. Um, and so there's no, there's no room for compromise on those. And basically that means that, um, that essentially the Democrats are not united, um, which means that they're going to need to get some Republicans to get on board um, if they're going to remain split. So it's either get some Republicans on board or sort of every single Democrat has to unite behind a particular policy, right? right. So you get this sort of polarization um, that even tends to split sort of the parties. And this is this is not new. Um, it's gotten worse in Congress, but this is basically a rerun of what we saw back in 2013 with the Republican Party and the mm -hmm. Tea Party. Basically, you have sort of this sort of um, the establishment of a party versus in the, the more moderate part of the party versus the more sort of radical ideological types who want to sort of swing for the fences, um, no compromises. So basically it's the same circus, but like different clowns essentially, right? So now there's just a few more like bright blue clowns than bright red clowns essentially. Um, so it's, it's the same, it's the same sort of, it's the same sort of situation. I, I, I could say more, but Chris said to keep this short and punchy. Clowns are terrifying, dude. <laughs> they are. They are. It makes the analogy apt. It does. Mm -hmm. it, does. it works. I like it. Oh. All right, Mitch, um, let's, let, let's get just some basic definitions on the road here. How do political scientists think about polarization? Uh, well, polarization essentially means that you have less and less overlap uh, between the two parties and between part partisans within within the two parties. Um, you know, if you were to rewind, um, you know, at this point, I guess it'd be more like three decades almost. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, used to think more two decades, but I guess it's more like three decades now. I'm getting old. Um, but um, uh, you would have seen a lot of overlap. I mean, and Matt mentioned this a little bit already, um, you know, that you could easily imagine sort of like peeling, you know, you, you would have a more liberal Republican, a more conservative Democrat. Um, and this is a product of a host of features that I don't know if we'll talk about today or not. But um, but nonetheless, you had this overlap and the parties are not strictly ideological. And what we've seen over the last three decades is um, a pretty dramatic sorting where pretty much all the conservatives become Republicans, all the liberals become Democrats. And there's very few, there's very few, there's, you know, fewer and fewer moderates. And so you get less and less of sort of overlap between, between the two parties. That's essentially what polarization is. It's people splitting off into two and two, you know, 
more and more well-defined camps, essentially. Now, when you say people, I want to be clear here because there could be separate processes. Polarization can occur in our legislature because uh, the most the most conservative Democrat is still significantly more liberal than the most liberal Republican. And polarization can occur in several ways in the populace, which right. just means that our legislature represents us. Mm-hmm. Are these two things connected? Are we becoming a more polarized people? Or is our legislature becoming more polarized, exogenous to our own political beliefs? Yes. <laughs> so, okay. I know I said <laughs> keep it short. Keep it a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> what do Sorry, you mean, I just what, wanted do you, to, what do you mean by that? I wanted to interject that before Mitch gave his very astute answers. So, okay. um, or Andy, for that matter. So, not much. Uh, well. So, I mean, I, it doesn't have to be me, but um, I mean, the, basically, I mean, the the I mean, Matt's absolutely correct. I mean, it is it is a yes. Um, I mean, if you, I think, I think if you'd asked, um, and, and I mean, I should, I should immediately say that, like, you know, I think everyone is aware of this. I mean, my my expertise is is much more in political theory um and not only that i i feel like i'm more invested in the institutional side um than the mm-hmm. um political mm-hmm. behavior side um which i'm sure uh, dr carmines would be very <laughs> i did take his public opinion class but anyway <laughs> but, uh, nonetheless um it is. It is kind of both. I mean, if you ask me, and I think if you look at looked at political science literature, like even maybe a decade ago, um, they would have said there's polarization in the institutions, like Congress is polarized, yes. but there is not so much polarization in the public. And I think I what's agree. happened within political science and in reality is that there's been both a shift, but also a different conceptualization and understanding of polarization in the public. Mm-hmm. And I think both have happened. I think which is so it's hard mm-hmm. to sort of like pull it apart. On the public side, I think there has been a real shift in the public, and I think there, I think there is some political science evidence to suggest this: that people are more and more thinking of themselves in in partisan terms, and that there's less and less overlap. Like, if you are a Republican, your ideas conform very solidly to Republican ideas, and you're much less likely to agree with your Democratic neighbors. And in fact, you're even less likely to have Democratic neighbors. Right. Um, but yeah. uh, you know, and, and this, and vice versa for 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 the Democrats. But I think there's also been a change in political science, and maybe Matt will want to correct me on this. And I think in political science, there's been more and more of a realization that even though if you ask people like down a list of issue positions, people appear moderate, the issue positions that they care most about, what are sometimes referred to as valence issues, um, are always more extreme. And that's what people care most about when they go to vote. And that's what they care most about when they're talking about politics. And so in some ways, I think that has become more and more the focus where it looks like political science maybe in some sense was almost missing the polarization as it was happening um, in that way too. So, and one way yeah, to it, Oh, is, please go ahead, Andy. One way to illustrate this is just like a, a kind of interesting shift in um, opinion polling, right? Which is one of the questions pollsters like to ask to kind of get at sort of how people are divided, right? Is what kind of issues would bother you, right? If, you're, if your child wanted to marry somebody like this, right? Would that bother you, right? And so it used to be when you asked, like, would it bother you if your child married somebody who's of the other political party, right? That wasn't that bothersome to people, right? That wasn't that big of a concern. If you asked, if your child wanted to marry somebody from your, not outside your faith tradition, your religion, right? That really bothered people. And what we've seen in recent years is those have actually flipped, right? We care a lot less about the religious faith piece. Like, oh, that's fine. You know, like we're pluralistic, whatever, you know, if they're from different faith, no biggie. But don't marry a Democrat if you're a Republican. Don't marry a Republican if you're a Democrat. Those are bad people, right? And I think that does illustrate that there is a kind of 
um, polarization within society, right? And just to like maybe give two quick examples of how like the, the congressional piece has gotten so dysfunctional. I mean, just think back a few years, right? And this is within all of our lifetimes, right? I mean, 20 years ago, George W. Bush comes to office and he wants to pass this big piece of educational reform, right? Which probably wasn't that great a piece of legislation. Most of it's been repealed now, but he works with Ted Kennedy of all people, right? I mean, he's this like liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. We have a conservative Republican from Texas and they are working together on a common piece of legislation. Like that's striking. Um, that we find common ground there that doesn't happen today or rewind five years before that, right? Bill Clinton is reforming welfare with a Republican dominated Congress, right? Like, you know, we just, I can't imagine that happening today. I just cannot imagine finding that kind of ground to work together. Um, that indicates a really big shift. Mm -hmm. So to kind of come back to Mitch's point, maybe we can add another layer that allows us to hear this out. So Mitch is absolutely right. There was sort of this debate in, uh, sort of amongst American political scientists about sort of is polarization sort of chiefly driven by the populace, which is causing Congress to become polarized, or does it, or is polarization of the populace sort of driven by by political elites like Congress, the media, eco, you know, ecosystem, etc. Um, some of the smarter ones have always held that it's kind of a cycle. The the causality is a two way street, um, and I think now there's probably a greater recognition of that than there was even ten or fifteen years ago. And I think one of the layers that's getting added to this, like Mitch said, basically there are certain issues, these valence issues, um, in which perhaps we are becoming more polarized. But the important thing to note is that the increasing sort of polarization on very particular issues is not uniform across the populace. Mm -hmm. And so the way to think about polarization now is not, you shouldn't think of it as sort of occurring along sort of one dimension. You need to think of it as along two dimensions. So one dimension you could sort of, sort of think about as ideology, right? Liberal to conservative. Mm -hmm. um, the other dimension, you know, sort of the Y axis um, should be, you could sort of think of it in terms of intensity or identity, right? Um, and so there are certain people who have come to see their identity, as Andy has said, as being um, sort of bound up with the with their partisan tribe, essentially. Um, and basically, whatever positions that their party happens to adopt, whatever they are, even if they shift, they go along with their party. Because fundamentally, what has become important for these people is not um, is not an ideology, but it's belonging to a political tribe, which is why you see the party shifting um, issue positions and really remarkable arrays on certain issues. But at any rate, it turns out that in the middle of America, right, you know, the middle America where there's not much in the way of, of you know, there's, there's less intensity, it turns out that in the population that is less intensely political, there is actually the same level of polarization that there's been for the past 30 years. So we have, there's not actually been a substantive sort of increase in disagreements amongst Americans on most issues. What we've seen is an increase of, of affective polarization, right? right. Uh, not disagreement on the issues themselves, and perhaps right. Chris can talk about this, but actually simply an increase in sort of the fear and the hatred um, and the distrust of people on the other side. Um, and, and really, that's the sort of polarization that is most dangerous for for having a cohesive political system. Yeah, yeah I'll agree with, with what Mitch said a, a little bit ago. I think this might be something that at least a, a good body of the political science scholarly community was missing because I was remembering eh, a little over a decade ago, maybe around 2008, 2009, uh, Morris Fiorina and colleagues were arguing that basically because of structural or as Mitch included institutional reasons, our governance had become more polarized. And remember this was, this was, you know, just coming out of the, to the period that Andy mentioned where a Massachusetts Democrat and a Texas Republican are able to work together on education legislation. Right. But 
but what what Fiorina argued basically was you we still kind of were a purple country with very red and blue leadership but that was a response at the time to a theory known as the big sort which was basically people were moving because for educational reasons for economic reasons into populations that looked and sounded more like them that doesn't mean that they're becoming more homogenous in terms of race ethnicity or religion although some of that was happening more to the point what you were getting was this cosmopolitan educated economically more dynamic um, urban elite which tends to vote democrat and you were getting a more racially homogenous uh, less educated less economically dynamic but not poor just less economically dynamic um, uh, rural population uh, which tended to vote conservative tend to vote republican and that sort has only continued and so i I don't want to ever call a scholarly debate on my own, but it certainly seems like the people arguing for the big sort were right. And we've become a more a country that's more divided geographically, demographically, and that has allowed those valence issues to really take over when it comes to partisan differences. So as Matt was saying, even in places where people aren't very political and they don't have a, a strong list of political beliefs, I'm thinking about Phil Converse here and, and how um, he was so uh, denigrating of most uh, Americans and their sort of depth of political knowledge. They still know enough to play partisan politics, right? And and to align themselves, if not with a party, certainly with a broad set of ideas. Right. And I think just to add to that, I mean, like the, the whole and the divisions we have within the institutions feed that, right? Because then you, you make appeals based on, okay, we have these sort of communities. You're going to make appeals based on this. Um, and then what kind of leaders do those sort of communities choose? I mean, like they choose these, you know, people who then more strongly represent the radical extremes, right, of the party. So these, I mean, these things are, it's, it's difficult to disentangle them because they are kind of mutually self-reinforcing, right? Like it's, That's a really good point. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I, I mean, if you want to be an apologist for, for Americans, you could say we've been duped by our leadership and we've been duped by our media. And frankly, most of this sort of affective partisanship has been created artificially by our leaders. It's not something that's cooked, that's bubbled up from us. It's something that's been handed down, top down, uh, from above. And I, I'm, I'm amenable to that idea. What do you guys think about that? Is our MSNBC and Fox News creating partisan hatred amongst people who otherwise wouldn't have it? I mean, they're certainly feeding the flames, but I. Well, we're also turning. We're also tuning into those networks, so yeah, they want to absolve us of the yeah, responsibility either, right? I, 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 know. I, I think. Will, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mitch. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's hard to sort of like nail down exactly like, yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's totally hard to nail down like exactly where the chicken and egg and where responsibility yeah. like yeah. lies for all this. Although, you know, I do think, you know, I, I think I think there's a lot to some of the more recent like media research that suggests that, you know, once you hit, you know, the Internet and cable news age, that that's where you see a lot of this take off. But on the other hand, like there's also folks who are in sort of like who are studying more like is issues of race who argue that actually this is really taking off because uh, the Democratic Party, you know, finally des decides which which side of the race issue it's going to be on. And it's going to be on the side mm. of justice and civil rights. And that annoys the people who um, are not so favorable to <laughs> to those right. issues. And, and, you know, that basically leads to part of the sorting, too. So it's it's probably partially media. It's partially issues of civil rights it's also partially um 
issues of issues of religion. I mean, you begin to see, you know, more of the religious right and evangelicals coming into play. I mean, there's just all this stuff that kind of happens in the 1980s and over the 1990s. Uh, it's partially yeah. choices, partially people's allegiances to other groups. Um, definitely, I think also partially the media environment. Um, and there's just kind of been a storm of stuff that's led to this, this, you know, yeah, this, this position we're in. Yeah. And I mean, there's some other, yeah. I mean, there's no simple explanations for this. I think the media sort of plays a big role, right? I think there's other sorts of, you know, um, sort of incentive structures that have changed, um, especially for members of Congress. I mean, we've talked about this before. Um, I'll continue sort of bang, bang on the table about this. You know, the primary system, essentially traditional party organizations cannot control who runs under their party banner, right? Um, and what this has meant is this sort of slipping away of the control of, you know, the party to actually, you know, basically bring in people who are going to promote the interests, the long-term interests of the party. And now, basically, the, the party's nominees for whatever office, they're chosen, uh, they're chosen by the electorate. But specifically chosen by um, right. by the partisans who are most likely to vote in the primaries, right? And so those people who come to vote for the primaries, those are the ideologues who are really committed, right? And they are going to tend to vote for for people who are more ideological and partisan and less likely um, to to compromise, right? Yeah, a George W. Bush or even a Ted Kennedy, I don't know if they would survive. If they would get primaried, I think, in today's system, right? So you have the primary system. You have other things um, like the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, for example. What it did is it reduced the amount of money that could be donated to parties and campaigns of, of individual members of Congress. And so this, with along with the internet, has completely changed the fundraising model for members of Congress. So now you don't go to big donors to raise money for your campaign. Now fundraising is primarily through creating messages and sound bites and you know, taking issue positions, essentially, that can sort of go viral. And then you sort of curate those um, to target basically a, a, a group of constituents who will then donate money online. And the people who, you know, donate the most money consistently, they're the hardcore ideologues, right? They give the most money. And this fundraising model basically means that everything you do on Congress, all the speeches you give, everything is not all about fundraising, right? And so the whole goal of, you know, taking big money out of politics or whatever, then take money out of politics it just shifted the incentives of members of Congress. Um, and I think it's actually done done real damage and taken us in an unexpected direction. Okay, so I want to have a picture question to Andy here because I'm going to say something kind of Captain Obvious like some of these things we're talking about are very unique to the American political system. Yeah. Things like the uh, Campaign Finance Act that uh, Matt just talked about, the primary structure, our party structure. Um, uh, district re, uh, redistricting and, and 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 gerrymandering and those sorts of things, but there but some things uh, extend across the United States to other countries. Uh, changing media environment, for example, Andy, are we seeing similar kinds of polarization in other analog countries that help us get a grip on how much this is caused by some factors versus others? Yeah, we. I mean, we really are like that whole kind of populist instinct on the right and left that we've seen with you know Donald Trump on the right and then Bernie Sanders on the left. Right, I mean, we're absolutely seeing. Um, similarities in, you know, some of our, you know, close allies, in fact, I mean, like you think about Britain, right? I mean, what is Brexit, but in some ways a kind of right-wing um, populist policy push, right? What's Jeremy Corbyn rising to lead the Labour Party? I mean, that is, you outsource, you know, how you decide your leader to the rank and file of the party, and you get this guy that most of the people in Parliament for the Labour Party could not work with, 
and you're stuck with him until such time as he finally decides to resign, right? I mean, like, that's a big mess, right? It's, it's against, it goes against the system um, and it creates all sorts of tensions. Just one more example, right? I mean, like, we just had an election in Germany, which we talked about last week on this podcast, and we absolutely see the same kinds of tensions in Germany, right? You get the party of the right, um, the AFD, you get the party of the left, the Linke, right? And it's just like, you know, it's creating these tensions and it's making it more and more difficult to govern. So, I mean, I think, you know, I think the specific things Matt was just talking about are creating particular issues here, but you're right. I mean, these are kind of larger issues in the West as we kind of move into this era of you know, post-modernity or post-post-modernity, whatever we're in now. Um, I think we're, you know, we're seeing those kind of common trends. Wouldn't post-post-modernity just be more post-modernity or a or neo-modernity? Or maybe just modernity again. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> reminds me of the it reminds me of the psych episode where the where Ni- what's his name Nigel something or other Farage. He's he's making fun of like um, uh, what's his name on American Idol um, Simon okay. Cowell Simon. Simon? Yeah. Okay. He's like, you know, he, he describes the performance as post, 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 post modern. <laughs> oh, that's good. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And and one of the and one of the things, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, one of the things Please. that, you know, you have, you know, that that sort of is true not only of the American political system, but these other systems too, is just, you know, is is social media and sort of right. what it does mm-hmm. to yeah. the information that we are exposed to. Like there's interesting new research over the past couple of years. Um, some of it come out very recently that sort of the, we, we, we sort of thought like, oh, the cure for polarization is if you're just exposed to the ideas, um, from people on the other side, like, oh, there's other viewpoints. And this is kind of what I taught students. So like, well, it turns yeah. out that we are exposed to the views of the people on the other side, but we're exposed to the craziest stuff. Right. Yeah. So if I'm a Republican, I'm exposed to just the nut jobs on the left. Right. Or if I'm a Democrat, I'm exposed to the nut far right-wing flamethrowers, right? As opposed to the more reasonable, moderate voices on each side. So basically we're exposed because it's those voices that basically the algorithms um, basically pick up on and and propagate the most, right? So if I'm exposed to the worst on the other side, I'm going to think that all of them are kooks and they're they're crazy, right? Um, And this just drives the fear. This drives the hatred. This drives this this sense um, that we've seen come out in some very recent polls from like the University of Virginia that that the majority of Biden voters and near majority of Trump voters basically think that if the other side gets control of Congress and the presidency, then we are done for. American democracy is doomed, right? right. And that's sort of, yeah. and then you know what? Members of Congress, they tap into that, right? And they they use that in their messaging and in their fundraising, and that just feeds into it more. And so you get sort of yeah. this, this vicious cycle uh, that keeps us spiraling downward. Yeah, because it's a really short-term strategy. Right? I mean, you're basically, yeah. you're torching kind of our connections through civil society for the sake of your own next election, um, your own next fundraising effort, right? And uh, I'm not sure how many times uh, we can do that before we really, you know, destroy ourselves. So I'll push back on something here, and I'm going to sound really cynical when I say this, but I actually think it's not a short-term strategy so much as it's a narrow-minded one. Oh, sure. Um, Because what this allows members of Congress to do, if they're appropriately orthodox in their liberalism or their conservatism, they can can stay in Congress for a very long time in a very safe seat um, once they've redistricted in a certain way that allows them to essentially hold on. 
Um, there's very there's very few competitive seats because even though a lot of districts would generally vote for someone in the 60-40 range, uh, we tend to get 80-20 candidates because of uh, the way we're, we're structured. Right. right, and the way the primary system works, right, too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, short-term in the sense that, you know, you're not looking at, like, what's good for the the country long-term, you're looking at kind of your own benefit. And I mean, like, let's be honest, at some level, we are all short-term, we're mortals, right? Like our, our future, whatever it is, is short. Um, but this country, you know, has outlasted us by a long time. I mean, it's been around for 230 years. We'd like it to be on, around 230 years from now. Um, choices we make now matter for, you know, that, that prospect. So let me ask a devil's advocate kind of question to all three of you, which is someone listening to this might say in a kind way, your all, all of your default assumption is that more moderate policies and more moderate politicians are preferred and politicians who compromise and politicians who work across party lines are preferable to those who don't and someone might say you namby pamby academics who love to see the sausage <laughs> getting made what we really need in this country is a good old-fashioned cultural reckoning and we need to decide what we are and we need to either marginalize these um uh atavistic conservatives or we need to uh show these effete liberal um uh cosmopolitans what for and reestablish what it really means to be american and let's have this out and this is a healthy process for the united states uh, a real good soul search is there, any, val is there any validity to sort of just really uh getting away from conserve or from, from sort of you know middle of the road compromising so I do think, actually, I don't, I don't know that that's completely a devil's advocate position, really. Um, so Ezra Klein, who, of course, is the famous um, founder of Vox and yep. uh, also uh, is now like a major New York Times uh, columnist yep. and podcaster. Um, and wrote a book called Why We're Polarized. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, Why We're Polarized. That's actually his position. Like, um, he goes through, and what's interesting about his book is, um, you know, it's a whole book that basically, like, documents, like, how destructive polarization is and then like in the last chapter he kind of like pulls the rug out from under you and says like actually this is good and his whole argument basically follows what chris just said i mean his argument is essentially a it gives you a real reckoning and he argues that yes we actually do need like a real reckoning to figure this out i mean he argues that like the civil rights movement was a moment like this um and that that was actually a positive thing um that you know you, you whenever you have like moderates running the scene that basically is always at the expense of people who are frequently unheard. And so he says, you know, the only way to get people who are unheard or marginalized back into the picture is if you have a moment of a time of polarization that basically allows these voices to, to come back into the picture. Um, and not only that, I mean, just on the other side too, it also gives you a much clearer like conception of what, uh, you know, what people actually believe, you know, you don't have sort of this muddle of, you know, well, here's, you know, I don't know, here's, 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 here's Ted Kennedy, who um, is kind of weird on education. Um, yes, he wants more like spending, um, but then also like at various times in his career has been pro-life or whatever, like, you know, who knows what he actually believes. Um, you know, so it gives you kind of this weird thing and, you know, you get more clarity if you have more polarization, you know, who, you know, who's what and what they're doing. Okay, and this is where I, <laughs> yeah, oh, good. yeah, I, I, I think him. okay, right, I think there's go. some truth to what you're to to 
to this viewpoint, I'll say. But I think this confuses different kinds of polarization, different types of disagreement. What we have now is not a serious clash of ideas. Now, right. to be sure, we have partisans that have different views of what the country ought to look like. Absolutely. And we need we we need some clarification, for sure. And debate can be a good thing. And in a sort of Madisonian system, you're necessarily going to get a clash of ideas, right, uh, before before you can get a government that is that is decides to move any direction. Well, what we what we do not have in any way is sort of an intelligent sort of discussion of 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 issues, um, right. or even really a coherent ideology on either side. Um, truly, um, that is that is not at all what we have right now. What we have is just pure tribalism with a nice patina of of ideology layered over top. Um, right. That's right. ultimately what we have. I mean, this this recent yeah. polling, and, and what this means is that there's just a fundamental distrust of the other side that is so deep yep. and so yep. pervasive that prevents any sort of discussion. Because if you yeah. think that the other side is composed of devils, right, <laughs> um, that you that no longer belong in your country, then right. discussion is not possible. Polling recently came out basically... 50% of Trump voters, 50% of Biden voters strongly or somewhat agree that it's time to split the country. There is no longer sort of a shared culture, a shared understanding that it can even serve as the basis for moving forward, yeah. disagreeing on an issue, and then moving forward together on it. Um, so so I would say, like, yeah, if, if we can have... Anyway, I, I would just like to, to push back on this idea that if we're just able to clash together and then we could sort of clarify where our positions are and then move forward. Like, that's that's not at all what's going on right now. Yeah, and let's be to the point Liliana Mason is making an uncivil agreement, which I brought up on this podcast before. But, you know, she's saying, like, look, I mean, you might think deeper engagement is a good thing. Um, and in some cases in democracy, it can be a good thing. But it's not in the way we're doing it because what we're basically doing is kind of stoking the flames of tribalism. And, and what we're doing is we're making, we're kind of increasing the hatred and fear um, of the others, right? And the, the problem is we are in this, you know, this territory, this country together, right? And like, you know, on the idea of dividing the country, I mean, how would you divide it, right? Like, so we, we need to find a way to live together. Um, and we can't do that if we're seeing the others as, um, as devils, right? So that's, I think, it's really concerning. And I just don't, I don't see any path to like, how do we agree on these issues, right? In terms of like when you think that, you know, when you're so far apart as we are in some of these issues, on uh, the valence issues at least, right? Um, that's difficult. So what we really should be doing is trying to say like, okay, what are the issues we can agree on more? What are the areas where we can figure out at least ways to tolerate and agree to disagree? But that's not what we're doing. What we're trying to do instead is when we get power, let's ram down extreme legislation down the other's throats, right? And and try to, you know, get, get away with whatever we can get away with while we're in power. Um, and then take the consequences of the ballot box. And that just feels like a really destructive mentality. Yeah, because both parties are basically saying we are in the midst of an unpre unprecedented crisis. If we don't implement our policies, vote for, you know, get our president, our party in power, then everything is doomed. Right. So we saw this with Trump and we saw this with Republicans. Now we're seeing with Democrats, they're making arguments like if we don't pass this three point five trillion dollars today, all of these horrible things are going to happen and we're in a crisis and this we have to solve we can solve it now right and this sort of maximalist we're in a crisis we're going to swing for the fences sort of winner take all 
no holds barred, no compromise politics is ruining us. Um, this again, this is not a clash of ideas, um, a serious clash yeah. of ideas. I think it's, and, and I think that's, I, I totally think that's right. What's, that's the irony, actually. I think of Klein's book is that he acknowledges all that, like he documents yeah. it. And he says like it's all tribalism, and right. then somehow at the and then at the end he's still. I, I think that's where people have critiqued his book the most. Actually, <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> it seems odd. This is leap actually, faith, <laughs> right? Yeah. I actually think it's what you guys are describing too, because on the one hand, we might say that this is not a question of legitimate debate about ideas. It really is just sporting event, right? I put on the blue jersey, I put on the red jersey, and it's my team, ride or die. But that has given way to it's not just my team, ride or die, it's my facts, ride or die. Yep. And this is sort of spelled out in ways that I think both party elites are finding troubling. Right. Um, and that includes, um, well, to be honest, uh, the high level partisanship surrounding vaccination, for example, or the high level partisanship surrounding uh, trust in the Centers for Disease Control or Anthony Fauci or some of these kinds of things. Uh, Democrats are highly supportive of vaccination in general, um, although it's notable that um, some of the most hesitant parts of the Democratic caucus that are um, are people of color. Um, on the other hand, Republicans are much more skeptical, but not entirely skeptical, but much more skeptical on vaccination than Democrats. And this seems to be driven by partisan affect. Um, and this is not the kind of issue where we're, like to Matt's point, where we're having a partisan debate where there's like le legitimate ideological differences. It's really a different, it's a different understanding about the way the world works or the way that science is applied in social situations. I'm, I, I mean, just to go beyond that, I'm not even sure it's a difference over science itself. I mean, I think part of what's part of what's, I think, disturbing about our moment now, and I think where this tribalism has really, especially sort of become particularly dangerous or radioactive is that it used to be the case, at least to some degree, that people's identities were you know, diverse. Like if you ask somebody who they were, you would immediately get like, oh, I'm a, you know, I don't know, whatever it happens to be. I, here's my career. You know, I'm a salesperson or I'm yep, in management yep. or I'm a lawyer or whatever. Um, you know, and then you get something else like, oh yeah. And I've got, you know, I'm a husband or I'm a wife and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah, you'd have just a series of things, you know, I'm somebody who does photography on the weekends or, you know, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> sure. Um, but you know, and those, and, and then of course, alongside all of those things, you'd also have politics like, oh yeah, and I happen to be a Democrat or whatever. Um, but now it's become the case that in many ways, whatever else you fill in with your identity is in some ways downstream of your identity. So, you know, you begin to see more and more where people are identifying um, everything from like particular careers, particular uh, places they want to live, um, the restaurants they go to, uh, you know, the kind of merchandise they buy, all of this kind of stuff is like very much determined by politics first. Um, the times, uh, you know, I mean, one of the ways that we have seen this, you know, pretty early on, I mean, and this was years ago was, you know, you started to have ideas like all oh, particular uh, you know, if you're if you're if you're a, somebody who drinks lattes, like you have to be a liberal or whatever, um, you know, and this is sort of given way, you know, to on the other hand to like being like, well, you know, if, if you if you eat Chick-fil-A, like now you have to be a Republican or something like that. 
And, you know, you just have more and more of these things creeping in. And, you know, now there's like Black Rifle Coffee, co coffee Company, which is supposed to be like the conservative answer to Starbucks. And it just sort of like spirals out. Like you have this new, this constant thing where like every element of your identity now is, is kind of downstream of politics. And again, it gets back to this, you know, sort of apocalyptic feel that Matt has, 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 has described here too, where it's like, if everybody else is, is the devil, like, why would you shop at the devil's store? Right. And yeah. so, you know, or go to the devil's restaurant. So, and I, it, that's kind of the mindset that has... terrible Yelp reviews, by the way, at the devil's <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so that's kind of the mindset that's crept in and that, that seems to be an especially toxic um, element of this or, or trajectory for this. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, our, our political has sort of, sort of subsumed, you know, the, the cultural, right. Um, even though sort of disagreement on particular political, like strictly political policy issues, maybe actually hasn't increased um, all that mm -hmm. much, right? I mean, you can, you can, you know, put every, I mean, there's interesting sort of polling, you know, on like, what are Americans issues on like really hot topics like abortion? Like, right. yeah, you get people on, you know, the left and the right that are like, you know, free abortion all the way, no restrictions, or we need to ban abortion. But it turns out that for quite some time now, a large majority of Americans, you know, are basically squeamish about abortion, think that it should be available, but it should be pretty heavily restricted. Right? Yeah. Um, and and that, that does actually remains fairly steady, right? But of course, you don't hear from those people. For those people, abortion isn't sort of a really important political issue, right? And so, who are we going to hear from on these important issues, on these sort of controversial issues? The people who are most fired up about them, right? right. Who also happen which, to which would be fine, except that the people who are increasingly most fired up about this are increasingly also sorting much more in aligned, polarized fashion. Right? right, exactly. So, all of these polarizations on different issues, you might say, amongst the most uh, political types, right? They're all sort of, you know, aligning across all these issues. Right? Exactly. So, um, so okay, so I, I have fewer cross-cutting issues, I guess. I have a grim question to ask you, and it involves a, a very gross thought experiment. So, if you were to, let's say, take a nosedive into a black hole, I I don't know about what? you, I was I loved astronomy when I was a kid, and uh, the idea of black holes were, was were fascinating. I yeah. um. The a brief history of time came out when I was a kid. I remember reading that, and the um, uh, what I did. Come on. Um, oh, we we believe you. But one of the things this I one of the things you thought of as a kid was, well, if you jump into a black hole, you'll just be crushed by the gravity. Not true. You will eventually your atoms will eventually be crushed by the gravity. But what is going to happen first is you're going to be ripped in half. Right, because the part of you that's closer to the black hole is going to be pulled so much faster towards the black hole than the than the latter half of you that you're actually your head will be separated from your feet before you ever get close to the black hole, just because of the disparity in gravity. Likewise, the United States is be <laughs> <laughs> see see see. Likewise, the United States is being pulled apart too as we dive towards this dark, dismal path. Is there any way out of the event horizon? Is there any way we get out of this? polarization without being ripped in half first well of course by definition once you're over the event horizon you're done right but i know but i'm hoping for han solo here making the kessel run is there some kind of way that we can <laughs> is some kind of way we can we can get out of the out of the, the riptide out of the whirlpool is there yeah. is uh, do we have evidence of countries that have experienced significant polarization that have subsequently become less polarized 
without we're, going we're into civil war. Uh, I guess that's uh, there we go. So this is a good point. So um, in, in America's past, we have had extreme polarization, and sometimes we've resolved it with war, the Civil War, uh, World War II. But are we willing to have that kind of national calamity, or, or is that the only way out? I guess. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, I guess. I mean, obviously, I hope it's not the only way out. Um, you know, it's one of these things where, again, it kind of goes back to this question of, you know, of the, in, in some ways it goes back to this question of the role of elites. And, you know, it's, 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 it's one of these things where you have to kind of, in, in, in the past, when you've seen people be able to pull back from the brink, um, you know, it's been because, you know, enough elites have been willing to, to sort of see the problem and been willing to sort of, sort of pull away. Um, you know, you think about, for example, I mean, again, this was a less polarized era, although in this way, not that much. But I mean, you think about like the elites during during Nixon, um, you know, there were enough Republicans um, in leadership that were willing to say, like, yeah, this is this is wrong. We're not going to go down this road. And it took a long time. But, you know, at the end of the day, they were, you know, they they, you know, basically basically saw, saw that this was this was more important than their than you know political allegiance. And I think that's, you know, it's it's kind of a question like, are, can we muster enough elites who are able to do that in some sense? And I, I just, you know, that seems like that's that it seems like that has to be the key. Like you either either muster enough elites and part of that probably has to come through institutional change. Maybe. I mean, maybe you have to, like, mute the primary system to some degree or campaign finance to some degree, I, you know. But of course, the problem and this and this this kind of gets back to the gloom like yes it seems like it's possible but now that we're in this moment of polarization <laughs> are any of those reforms even are any of the reforms themselves possible i don't you know, yeah so, i don't know maybe yeah. i'm just increasing yeah. the gloom maybe matt has cheerier things no i don't um <laughs> yeah and, and, and the reason here for comes that, the, here comes the singularity yeah yeah exactly <laughs> well i i think mitch is exactly right i think you would need you would need sort of a, a critical mass of elites to basically say to basically pull back. The problem is it would take not only just sort of elites, you know, in Congress, right, our, our elected um, sort of political elites, but it would take elites in the in the media sort of ecosystems as well. And the problem is, I just think even the incentive structures there um, are are working against that ever happening, right? I mean, you, I mean, it's interesting. You get the sense that you know that sort of media personalities themselves um, are actually just kowtowing to the most extreme viewers, right? And are actually scared of some of the, you know, the people who because call Because they're in the people who will tune in and watch. And, and well, right, and because you know what? Because they, you know, because they want to make the money and they like being fame, famous and they like being loved, right? That's that's why people get into this business, right? Um, and, and if you're increasingly, and that's the thing. So, you know, if you're media elite, you are catering more to, to very sort of narrow segmented audiences versus 50 years ago, you had to cater to a much broader audience because we didn't have as many media sort of media proliferation has, has actually sort of made this more problematic. And I, I just think, I just think you would have to have so many sorts of, um, sort of structural changes to sort of our whole media ecosystem to the primary system, to how campaign finance works. Um, just so many different changes would, I, I think, have to be made, even just a little bit, for us to get any sort of change in these incentive structures. And barring that, I, I'm not really sure what's going to be able to pull us out of this. 
Yeah. I mean, part, part of one of the things that could make it slightly better um, if we could if we could figure out a way to just sort of do it is to is to remove some of the most destructive elements. Yeah. I mean, just like the current debate over like the debt ceiling, for example, like, I mean, nothing good comes out of this. You know, yep. it, the, the consequences for not actually raising the debt limit are just, you know, basically the United States is no longer, you know, the most powerful country in the world. I mean, it's kind of, you know, what it boils down to. Um, and, you know, just the consequences of that are just catastrophic. And so the fact that we have polarization, like making that a football um, is just horrible. Like removing some of the most destructive like bombs that are kind of in our system would help a lot. I mean, cause just because then you actually could have, you know, yes, you could have the democratic party and the Republican party fighting it out or trying to find a way through infrastructure, but it wouldn't be as consequential. Like failure would just mean, we continue to have crumbling bridges and the Democrats probably lose their majorities um, in a couple, in, you know, in a year and a half. Whereas, you know, right now it could mean that, you know, we crash the world economy and <laughs> the United States, you know, the dollar is no longer the, the, you know, the, the main currency of the world and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I guess what, what worries me and uh, sort of bad news and then maybe sort of where I see this potentially sort of, correcting itself is like so not only i mean you see a lot of elites who you would want to stay in the system people who are moderate who are interested in working with the other side you know are leaving they're retiring from congress right maybe we'll have a conversation about this but but they're done right now maybe some of them are older they want to spend time with the grandkids some of them are young right um and but they're just they're like i can't do this i'm getting i'm literally getting threats to my family because i'm willing to work with the Democrats or the Republicans on an issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm not ideologically pure. They're being threatened by crazies, mm-hmm. right? Seeing this on both sides. And that's a big problem, right? Um, if, 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 you, if the choice is between trying to stick around and do good, but you know, but also protecting your family, like if there's a situation where our elites are facing that choice, we are in a bad, bad way. I wonder if what's, what it's gonna take is those sort of those apolitical types, those people, you know, who don't care much about politics, whose identities aren't wrapped up in politics. What I think is ultimately it's going to take those people seeing the ship going over the event horizon and saying, we got to pull us back, right? We've got to pull people back because right now they're not involved. Um, but I do wonder if somehow they got a sense that, that things are, are slipping away. I wonder if they would jump in um, and basically say, we, we got to do something about this. I think, I think we might get to a breaking point um, and maybe enough Americans will wake up and decide to do something about it, but I'm not sure. That's maybe just optimistic. So. Uh, I actually, I, I would like to mark this down. I'll put it on my, my calendar. Uh, Matt has out optimistic me. Um, I, I, I said, maybe I said, <laughs> I, I said, I said that I think that might be the only way we like, we get to a, a tipping point, right. And then we either at the tipping point, we, we make the adjustment, we pull back, and we move the right direction, or we just go over. Um, and I'm not sure we're going to get enough sort of structural shifts along the way or adjustments that are really allow us to pull back. Like, I, I, I am genuinely worried, and I genuinely lose sleep over this, that we're going to go to the brink. And the question is, what happens at that point? Yeah, I, I, I think we're going to the brink. And I, I think the only kind of thing that maybe is a – that I would put any stock in whatsoever – is with Donald Trump, we've um, we've seen the potential for a populist celebrity candidate. Now, I think Trump, for lots of temperamental reasons, but also policy reasons, was 
um, not good to do it. It was not a good candidate to do what I'm about to suggest. But imagine someone who is so famous in American politics that they can essentially divorce themselves from the party structure and still acquire a lot of American votes. Maybe they run as a Republican, but they're essentially moderate. They run as a Democrat, but they're essentially kind of a conservative Democrat. And they get into power and using that fame, essentially, rather than consolidating power with their party, which is what was what Trump did. Um, they look for ways to undermine partisan structure. Now, I want to be careful here, because there's a huge danger in this, which is essentially the loss of our democracy. By, by investing in a demagogue, you might end up with authoritarianism. But you could also end up with a restructuring that brings more moderation. I, it's not a risk I necessarily want to take, uh, but it is a possible way out of this other than the precipice that Matt is describing. And I think the precipice is the more likely outcome. And here's why this theory won't work is because increasingly, I was actually reading an article about this the other day, is that we don't have any sort of, we don't have any real celebrities that would be sort of lauded politically across the spectrum, right? I mean, the right is actually developing, they have their own celebrities now, right? Um, and were there some, you know, some celebrity that is beloved by all or most Americans, right? Once they decided to step into politics, they would inevitably step into certain issue positions that are going to be seen as impure or beyond the pale by one side or the other. And that's why such a person would, would never get elected. That's my theory. So. I guess one other way possibly out of this, I mean, if you want sort of a, <laughs> a way out of sort of the, the absolute brink, um, is there is some possibility, um, you know, that, and again, this kind of gets back to, I think, Chris, you brought this up at the very beginning. I mean, there's a possibility that maybe this, maybe one side or the other prevails. And and I do think that there is an increasing possibility um, that actually, particularly de the Democratic Party and the liberal side might just prevail um, in, in, in general. And I think part of the evidence for that is, you know, there is a growing population uh, you know, sort of demographic and population shift towards the Democratic Party and towards liberalism, um, particularly in younger generations. Um, you know, if you look at the, if you look sort of at the polling of the most of, uh, you know, like younger millennials and Gen Z, um, I mean, it's absolutely catastrophic for the Republican Party right now. I mean, it looks like, you know, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent um, of millennials and Gen Z are going to be, are, are, you know, pretty solidly becoming Democrats. And, you know, down the pipe, that means if you sort of like play this out 10, 15 years, that means that as you see older voters who are primarily Republicans dying off, you're going to see a bloom of liberal and, uh, you know, Democratic voters. And so it is possible, you know, that the way this resolves itself as we go through another decade of sort of like absolute, you know, going side to side here on these things. But at the end of the day, like, uh, you suddenly, you know, you eventually move into sort of a, you know, a period of super majorities for for uh, for the Democratic Party, and I guess maybe the other element that could lead to that as well is, and you know, folks on the Republican side who who like Trump are probably not going to like this, but I think Trump would only hasten that process. Hmm. I think you know, if if Trump continues to be the core of the Republican Party. Um, you know, you get more and more people alienated, especially young people and, you know, professionals, you know, people who otherwise might be Republican, um, get pushed further and further from the party. And so even though you have a lot of safe Republican seats, you know, you've got a lot of stuff, especially in the Senate, that's going to hold this polarization battle in play for a mm -hmm. while. Quite um, a while. There's a chance that this actually does resolve itself with the final victory of, of essentially liberalism. 
And I think that might be, I think that's right to an extent. I mean, there was kind of this sort of theory, um, really for the past 20 years, this sort of demographics is destiny argument that indeed, basically, um, <laughs> the, the up and coming generations for various reasons are going to be predominantly democratic. That's how they're, they're coming to identify. Um, and they're simply just going to outnumber uh, outnumber Republicans. But that theory has been sort of recently complicated um, because, um, you know, because, you know, white, um, well-educated Americans who primarily, you know, voting Democratic, they're not having as many babies. That's one thing. Um, another thing is you're getting other sorts of shifts of people out of the Democratic Party, sort of the, the white working class. And you're getting certain groups of people, including large his sections of the Hispanic population, actually now voting uh, Republican. Right. And I think that's going to and even some shifts amongst African-Americans, um, um, black Americans. I, I think Mitch might be right, even if the whole, let me say this, I think the country as a whole is becoming more liberal ideologically, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the Democratic Party is going to be, um, is going to be ultimately ascendant. Maybe it will be. I see both parties shifting leftwards, especially on economic issues. We've already seen that, um, but still seeing some a, a pretty, a pretty significant divide um, and, and both parties being consistently holding a large minority and then buying over, you know, a chunk of people in the middle. If that were the yeah. case though, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I, it's, I, I think that's correct. I mean, it does, it does seem like um, it's, it's hard to predict exactly. Yeah. How <laughs> yes. I mean, I think, you know, and especially, especially with the, with the Democrat, with the demographic shifts, I mean, you know, it, it is hard to say like exactly what, you know, what, what, what comes down the line. Um, but I mean, if we're looking for a possible way out, I mean, that does seem to me anyway, that seems like the most likely way out of yeah. polarization is that, you know, you do have this final move where, um, there just finally are enough, you know, uh, enough, enough people on the, on, on the left that, you know, that that's, that, that becomes the dominant thing and you know and you sort of move back to a situation like you had in the 1940s 50s 60s um, where you have a dominant democratic party and, and a you know republican minority yeah i'm it's possible but i think we're, we're it's a it's a long time coming and i think the structural advantages that right. republicans enjoy particularly in the senate can delay that for a significant period of time yeah. Um, yeah, guys, uh, we got to sign off here. This has been a really fun conversation. Well, no, I'm, well, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> this has not been a fun conversation. I enjoy you people, and I hope our listeners enjoy us explaining and talking through polarization together. But this has been um, sobering, and I think yep. um, I'm going to go home now and and hug children um, <laughs> and, and do and do things to increase my endorphins. So. Um, <laughs> Thanks, y'all, for listening. Uh, this is um, one of our longer podcasts. We're going to dip in every so often with one of these longer conversations betwixt our sort of weekly short uh, check-ins. All so, the long conversations will be soul-crushing. just like Exactly. <laughs> just brutal. Uh, bring, your, bring your emo music. All right. So... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll actually play the uh, we'll play the intro slower, so it'll be like, "Who am I? Why am I here?" <laughs> um, just kind of bring it down a little bit. 
All right. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out other things on the podcast channel. We've got a lot of great stuff at Channel 3900, uh, including the uh, uh, the food grand finale of Avatar with Academics. We just recorded a 252 today that's coming out. Uh, we got Tweet Victory and lots of other great stuff. So uh, check all that out. You can reach out to us with topics for short hits or for long conversations at, cha- at um, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can also email the podcast channel, channel3900 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for my colleagues here. And until you hear from us again, go Royals. Go Royals.